Well, I'm sorry that I'm late today because uh, my car died this morning. <laughs> and you jumped it. Of course. In of your course. driveway. Oh, absolutely. It's not. It's not that hard. You really wanted to talk about the book. I did want to talk about the book. It's arrived. It's here. <laughs> the meaning of Mariah Carey. I'm your host, Spencer. And I'm your host, Lexi. And if you're watching, hi. If you're Hello. listening, hey. So this is the second or third book I've actually read in my lifetime. By choice. By choice. Well, even, make that clear. even in, in school, like spark notes. Spark notes. <laughs> um, Honestly. And I read this in like two days and it's over 300 pages. Which is major for him. Like insane for someone who doesn't read. Um, but the moment I found out she was doing a memoir, us fans, Mariah fans, yes. you're a Mariah fan, not like me. No, he's like a Mariah stan. I'm a, I'm, a, be, I'm a, I appreciate her. I would be considered a lamb. A lamb, yeah. And that's why I'm wearing my icon shirt, because we're talking about an icon. You have to. It works. So she has been writing this for three years. So she, like she, through the years, she's been teasing it. And finally, it's here. And it's a lot of her life was there like she never talked about her family we always knew there was drama her marriage to tommy um the glitter breakdown her miscarriage marriage to nick divorce like she's had a tumultuous life for it's how amazing been it's been and the success um she has had a lot go down so i was really excited mostly to hear about her family drama and the glitter breakdown because there are... was so much stuff that was teased that we talked about in the podcast oh, yes. like with her mother and her sister and oh yeah all that stuff so there's been had to get the real the truth real straight from the mouth of the woman the who lived the it horse? all the... get it straight from the horse's mouth yeah there we go there we go period <laughs> okay oh so um, there have been, like Lexi said, stories out over the years about Mariah's drama with her sister and her mom, but we've never really known, she's never talked about why they don't really speak. She still is on good terms with her mom. I watched the interview she did with Oprah about mm -hmm. a month ago, and they just went through the book and talked about her family and her marriage to Tommy, and I have a whole list of page numbers. He's been telling me, he's been bugging me since he finished it about a week ago. To film something. Because like he's like, you movie. have to react to this. Oh my yes. God, I have to share this with you. So mm. here we are. <laughs> so The Meaning of Mariah Carey is on sale now. Buy it. We're the not cheapest, sponsored, but no, we love it. The cheapest, I was looking around online for it because I was like, I'm not going to pay $30 <clears> for a book because like, no. I don't read books. No. Um, literally found it on Walmart. Two-day free shipping. It was like 18 bucks. Nice. Okay. Yes. And it's a very nice quality book. It is. So. It's really nice. Um, so this is her as a little girl, and there is a story about this day in the book, which we will talk about. And okay. if you notice, on the, what is this called? The spine? The spine of the book. <laughs> um, her hair, as a little girl, transfers over to her hand, to her hair as an adult. Oh. Because she discusses her hair in the book, because she is biracial, and a lot of the book is about her growing up biracial, not knowing where she was placed, and it was really good. So, let's break it down. Break it in. The, break it in? Break it in, break it down. We are starting off with, obviously, the first chapter. I'm not going to go through, like, all the chapters. I have specific stories and quotes that I will pull. But I did want to mention that the book starts as Mariah as a little child. And through the chapters, she goes through her individual relationships with each family member and person that she's had, like her marriages a lot about her family she devoted a lot of the earlier chapters to and the first very first page the very beginning opens on a huge fight between her brother and her dad and she talks about in the book a lot her brother's anger issues he was very violent growing up oh. um, she has a mom and a dad of course an older sister and an older brother now her older brother's named morgan her older sister's named allison her mom is named Patricia, and her dad was named Alfred Roy. He passed away in 2002 from cancer, 2003-2002. Um, her father is, I believe, Venezuelan and black. Her mother is white as a ghost Irish, and so totally biracial. Um, she was on Always Growing Up and Still is the lighter side, so she talks about in the book always being considered passing. And she thinks that a lot of the animosity between her and her brother um, was that they were jealous of her because they were darker, they had darker hair. 
she was always lighter and had blonder hair. So they were kind of jealous of her because she was a baby and she was passing. Um, but That's a book, very common oh. sentiment that you hear, especially now when people are talking about it, the yeah. whole passing thing. So, and I mean, it makes of, sense. A lot of the book, when she talks about being biracial, I had, like, no idea this is what biracial kids go through. Like, I had no, like, reading all educational. this, I had no idea, like, even her hair. Because it was so untamed and she's half white and half black. And there's a story about her aunts trying to use a hot comb, but her hair was too thin to use a hot comb. But it looked like a black girl's hair. And so all of this, like, was, like, tension. Like, I had no idea. So yeah. she, like, totally explained it in, like, an amazing way. And I so, like, understand her. Like, I've been a fan of her for, like, five years and I've always loved her. But, like, I get it now. Yeah. Like, you get it. So if you're a fan and you want to get her... Read the book. So, as I was saying, the book opens on a huge fight between her brother and her dad. And her brother and her dad would always get into physical fights. This one, though, was like a defining moment for her because it took 12 police officers to pull them apart. Oh, my God. And It's like a whole department. Oh, yeah. Her Nana Reese was with her and, like, took her in her arms and, like, they were sheltering together, taking cover. And she said that she looked in her Nana Reese's eyes and for the first time ever as a little girl felt understood. Oh. And that's when she had like an awakening. Like that was her yeah. beginning. So that's where the book starts off. I do, after that, um, she begins to delve into her family. And then we go through all of her family, her marriage to Tommy, Glitter, and then Emancipation. So it's all the stages of her life. It's told in four eras parts. Wayward Child, uh, Sing Sing, all the glitters and emancipation. So we are in Wayward Child, and I want to open it up to page 13. We opened on a chapter called There Can Be Miracles. Now, Mariah was talking about her mother, her brother, and how they were living together for a lot of her childhood. Her, when her mom and dad got divorced at a very early age, she and her brother went to live with her mom, and her sister went to live with her dad. And so they were never all really that close because of their age differences and the divorce. However, um, this is where she begins talking about how she felt very neglected as mm. a child. She always felt very untamed. Her mother worked. She was left at home alone a lot. And she felt very neglected as a child. Now, there's a story in here of one night um, when she was home. And she was home alone. And her brother was supposed to babysit her, but left her. How alone. old is she? Um, six years old. Home alone. Oh my goodness, that's far too young. So, situations like that where she felt very neglected. Um, there's also a story in here that I do want to read about her brother's anger. And this is where Mariah felt that she just couldn't have a relationship with him because she was scared of him. Mm -hmm. And she talks about, on page 13, she said, and I quote, uh, I wanted my brother to love me. I was impressed by his strong energy, but it also scared me. This little house couldn't possibly bear the weight of all of our pain and fear, especially my brother's. It was a raw time. I was a scared little girl. My mother was profoundly heartbroken, and my brother, well, let's just say he more than simply was an angry teen, especially in high school. Mm. So there's a specific story in here I do want to read. Um, where her brother actually got violent with her mom and oh her mom goodness. passed out, like knocked unconscious and Mariah had to call for help, like oh get help God. and she was home alone because her brother left. Yeah. So let me get the story. So on page 14, she writes, my brother was broken early on and the only tool he had to defend himself was destruction. For most of my childhood, I was caught between my brother's fury and my mother's sad searching. And... Mm -hmm. She has said openly that she accepts her mother's duality, the beauty and the beast. And we will get to that. Okay. Um, and by the way, there is a storm of brewing outside my house. So if you hear any storm noises, that is what it is. Yeah. It's just ambiance. It, it's just ambiance. <laughs> so about the fight regarding the violent fight between her brother and her mom, she writes, Suddenly with it, there was a loud, sharp noise like an actual gunshot. My brother had pushed my mother with such force that her body slammed into the wall, making a loud cracking sound. I saw her frame go rigid. For a moment, she appeared frozen against the wall, pinned up like a painting. Her feet lifted several inches off the ground. Next thing I knew, she was totally limp, as if her bones had melted, folding onto the floor. Oh my and goodness. Mariah I can't talks imagine about, her having to witness that. Oh, it's that. insane. And it was over, get this, a normal high school fight. 
her brother wanted to use her mom's car to go hang out with friends and her mom said no. Mm-hmm. And so he got violent. And that's a mm-hmm. lot of what happened with her brother, allegedly. He had, he had, some, he had some issues. And he had he, some serious issues. I just flexed my finger and cracked my ring. Oh. Now, as I mentioned before, a lot of the book in her childhood, she discusses her struggle with being biracial. One of those moments was a family portrait of her family, and she was in school. And she said that they only had a brown crayon and a peach crayon. So when she was drawing, the assignment was, she was, I think, preschool, first grade, second grade, really young. Yeah. Student teachers came over and wanted to see her work. And they're like, what are you doing, Mariah? Can we see? And she showed them the picture. And she, her mom, her brother, her sister were all the peach color. And her dad was the brown color. Mm-hmm. And they all, she said this destroyed her. Like this, this was a defining moment for her with being biracial. They all started laughing and telling her that she used the wrong crayon for her dad. And that oh. you accidentally used the brown crayon. You, you, you used the wrong crayon. And so they took it into their hands and literally student teachers were coming over in groups and laughing. And at that moment, all the class turned to her and she realized I'm not normal. Because, like, by that point, yeah, you don't she, really know that your family's different. You don't know that there's something wrong or different mm-hmm. about you until somebody points it out. And that was and, a moment. And she's oh so Oh, my goodness. Young. Yeah. Definitely. Another story I want to point to in the book is about her dad. So she says that her dad was very hard on the kids, very, like, military. He was in the mm-hmm. military, and so he was very strict. Um, if I, she was, I, I relate to that. I do. If she was hungry... Before dinner, she didn't get a snack. He would give her one Ritz cracker because she couldn't spoil her dinner. Like, like very strict like that. Yeah. Um, also situations like with her brother and sister, if they got all A's, which she said they were super smart when they were younger, mm-hmm. they would get all A's. He would ask why they weren't all A pluses. Stuff like that. But yeah. he was a really good dad. And she said that, Every Sunday, her mom would drop her off there, and they would have Sunday dinners, mm-hmm. and he would make her linguine with his famous clam sauce, which she says every Christmas she still makes. Oh. Um, but there's one situation in here that happened that hurt her, um, and it was after she released her first album. He, she showed him her Grammys, and he said, maybe if you were a producer, you could win more, like Quincy Jones. So she says at that moment... That would- just be so heartbreaking. Oh, heartbreaking. She said at that moment, I had done astonishingly well as a new artist who had written all of her own hit songs. And there my father was comparing me to arguably one of the greatest musical giants the industry has ever known with decades of experience and endless accolades and honors to his name. I was immediately thrust back to my childhood as if my two Grammys were two A's on my report card and he was asking me what happened to the pluses. That's just so sad. It kind of gave me chills. I'm not gonna lie. Oh, this whole book is oh like goodness. insane. Yeah, and that's just. I mean, I under I can understand why he, you know, pushes her and pushes all of his kids so hard to be successful. Especially, you know, you link it back to his level of shame and humiliation. He doesn't want them to just meet the standard. He wants them to exceed it to, you yeah. know, make up for mm-hmm. whatever you know insecurities that he may have, or to fight the stereotype of, you know, being a person of color, not necessarily being that great in school and all that i can totally understand where he's coming from with that but like at the same time it's so it's it's damaging to to him yeah to push them so far that even when they are succeeding their success still isn't good enough it's never it was never good enough and she does describe in the book um later on she was she became very estranged from her family when she found fame and when her father was dying from cancer during 2002, 2003, she was recording her album Charm Bracelet. Uh, she went back to New York to be with him. And after he passed, she was cleaning out his house and had found that he had kept every single news clipping and magazine that she was on. And he had unknowing, oh. unknowingly to her kept up with her career through newspapers and magazines and had a box full of clippings that he had saved through like 20 years of her career. Now I do want to turn to her relationship with her mother. Um, She says that her relationship with her mom was always kind of strained because she feels like her mom later on was jealous of her success because her Mm -hmm. mother was a trained opera singer 
and never made it because she gave up her career to have a family. Um, now, her, she says that her mother, after the divorce, dated a lot of men. Some of them she liked, some of them she didn't like. Naturally. Of course. Um, there was one man that she did like, though, and his name was Henry. Okay. And um, she was in third grade when her mom met Henry, and they went to live with Henry. And she says that Henry built me a swing on a big old tree that was near what looked like to me a mini mountain made of garbage. Interesting. Um, she never lived in nice places. She said that she was always ashamed of the houses that she lived in mm. and always felt dirty and neglected. This was one of the times where she says in her childhood she felt stability and she was happy because Henry was there with her mother and they had sort of a home. Like, Interesting. You know. Yeah. Um, so she also said that Henry gave her a big and squishy orange cat named Morris. That's Morris, really cute. the icon. Love it. Um, which I think she had until 1993. So she had him for a long time. Good, I'm um, glad. She said that, you know, Henry was always kind to her and kind to her mother, paid for her to go to summer camp, which Aww. was very expensive. Oh, for sure. Um, and she said that she loved Henry. Um, and it didn't end well. Um... What happened was she got home from school one day. She, she says, one day near the end of my third grade school year, I got home and my mother was up in arms. She announced, we can't stay here anymore. We have to leave now. The car was packed and Henry was sitting inside at the kitchen table, totally dissociated with a shotgun. And she walks in the house and he says, I'm not going to let you guys go. I'm going to chop you up and put you in the refrigerator and make you guys stay here. So, I, what? So he was grooming them, basically. I don't know. Like, all the nice things, she, it's all just grooming well, for she, the abuse? No, because he never abused them. I think when well, his mom, Maybe not in front of Mariah, but the mother baby. We don't know. So maybe, I don't know, maybe when, when her mom That's was like... That's not a normal oh, no. response. He was behind the scenes, whether Mariah didn't see it or didn't notice it or was too young to really see the red flags for what they were. He was kind of... Some sort of abuse. Some sort of abuse to her mother, you know? Um, Which is really sad because she loved him. Yeah, well, I mean, if he's if he was genuinely abusive and he was grooming them and giving her all these nice things, and it's called love dumping, oh. um, where you basically you dump a bunch of love and affection and all these nice things onto the person so that then when you, the abuser chooses to abuse them, then they can be like, oh, well, I'm not that bad. Like, look at all this other great stuff I've done for you. Well, that's what her sister did. And we will get into that. Her sister oh. was a love dumper and was very manipulative. And there, see, there it is. We will get into that. Um, so while they were leaving Henry that day, she was like, oh my gosh, Morris, I have to go get my cat. And so she runs inside to get her cat and comes back out and they left. Mm -hmm. And she said that she never saw Henry again. And Maybe a good idea, given that he threatened to chop them up. Yeah, I, I, I really don't know. She never went into detail of why he said that, so I don't she know. She might not know. She might not know. Maybe it had to do with, like you said, her mom, maybe some sort of abuse. Uh, on page 57, she writes, I never knew what happened between her and Henry, and I never saw him after that day. I heard that many years later, while he was riding down the road in his same vintage red pickup, Vision of Love by Mariah Carey came bursting through his radio. I was told that he rolled down the window and yelled out into the fresh air, she made it, she made it. I really hope Henry made it too. Oh, that's sad? You know, maybe, yeah. You, know, you don't know. I don't know. That's just so Where he Maybe he dissociated strange. from thinking of them leaving and... Maybe he thought of her as a daughter and his whole world yeah, was going to be ripped away. But even if you think of somebody as a daughter, you don't, you don't you're gonna threaten. Chop them up. Yeah, that's just yeah, an extreme. Yeah, that was odd. I keep hitting this mic. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, it's just an, it's a very extreme response. It is. So I want to get into her relationship with her sister, which she discusses in a chapter called Dandelion Tea. Um, by far to me, her relationship with her sister was the most interesting because there's always been talk of there being like a huge rift between them. And we never knew why. I know, like I don't know how you're all family, but you don't talk to each other. And she referred even in her Oprah interview to her brother and her sister as her ex brother and her ex sister. And she's had to. Well, cut if them you out have like that level of toxicity in your family, then I can understand why you wouldn't. You have to, to cut 
There's out. some family that I just don't talk to just because we don't really get and, along. And age differences and divorce, and it was the circumstance that pulled them apart. Um, so in this one instance, um, Mariah kind of describes her sister. Her sister got pregnant very young, and at 15, actually, and married the guy and moved to the Philippines Wait, with him. married him at 15? Yeah. And moved to the Philippines with him because I think he was stationed in the army. Mariah was 12, and she was very confused because they had a bridal party slash baby shower, and it was very weird. I'm confused. And, oh, it's so messy. Like, insane. I mean, I feel, I feel bad for Allison regardless. I think Allison is truly the victim in this situation, and whoever her husband is, he's a jerk. her boyfriend. What, whatever. If he's in the military, he's too old for her. I believe he was in the military. I believe. And that's why they went, because he was stationed in the Philippines. Yeah. I I don't know. Um, too young. That's literally It's too young. She's illegal. 15 years that's old. That's not okay. Um, so Mariah kind of had a twisted sense of reality of, oh, I guess 15 is the year you get pregnant. That's when you get pregnant. Like, her, her childhood was very affected by watching her sister. And she says that years later, her sister came back. And she would drift from place to place, man to man, occasionally crashing with us in my mother's house between the many random relationships with men she collected and discarded. Uh, Mariah says that she turned to prostitution and drugs mm -hmm. and that her witnessing that made her realize, I'm never going to do drugs. I'm never going to do that. I'm going to make it because I don't want that life. And so she yeah. kind of had that example in front of her. Um, there's a few stories in here that like shocked me. One of them being, you talked about love dumping. Yes. Manipulation. That is how Mariah feels about her sister. Mariah discusses her sister's many relationships with bad men that she brought into their home when Mariah was young. And so she feels that her sister always put her in danger. One evening at the shack, that's what she called their house, Allison and my mother got into one of their uh, innumerable epic arguments. And for some unknown reason, Allison took me with her to this older gentleman's house. They got to his house and she writes um, that she remembered when they arrived, but a lot of the events of that evening are blurry to her. The wind, the wind is insane. Um, blurry to her because Allison sat me down on a light brown couch and handed me a little chalky ice blue pill with a crease carved down the middle and a glass of water. Here, Take this, she said. I took it. Within minutes, I think, I was in a heavy, scary darkness pushed down into a place beneath sleep, and I couldn't pull myself out. I don't know how long I was knocked out. I felt like I'd been absorbed into the couch, the only reason I remember the color. It was harrowing. At 12, I probably weighed 80 pounds, soaking wet, and Allison gave me a whole Valium. I don't know why my sister drugged me. I don't know why my mother let me go with her and this man. Perhaps they both wanted me out of their hair for the evening, but my life was in jeopardy in her hands. This may have been the first time that year that she could have seriously hurt me, but it certainly wasn't the last. Oh my goodness. I didn't know this that is, was what Valium looked like, so I was trying to figure out what pill it was. But this is oh one instance of her sister's abuse. She could have killed her. Oh, easily. easily. Um, and she says that even though by her 20s, Allison had already gotten married, given birth, gotten divorced, traveled thousands of miles away, and done dreadful things, she still could be zany and spontaneous. And at 12 years old, that's, you still think that's my sister, so she loves me, she'll protect me. Yeah. You don't, you, you're trying to form that bond still. Um, but she says in the book, even though I, I was young, I knew my sister was doing things that were not good. Um, I mean, I knew she had a beeper, and back then, only drug dealers, rappers, and doctors had beepers. Now, at this point, she says that her sister kind of flipped a switch, started taking her shopping, nail salons, hair salons, her and her new boyfriend would take her out to IHOP, they would get breakfast, and it was, quote, all just a setup. Mm. Now, one evening, when she was dropping her back off to her mom's house, Mariah says that her sister, quote, dipped a sharp pink nail tip into some white crystal powder and held it up to my face saying, just try it, just try a little bit, who cares? I knew it was cocaine and it scared me to death. Thank God I didn't take the sniff. 
I played it off and calmly replied, no thanks, bye, see you later. I shudder to think what would have happened if I walked into her trap and then that house. I don't know what would have happened if I'd snorted cocaine right before seeing my mother or ever in my life. That was another instance. And she was 12 at this point? This, I think this older. 12, 13, 14, around there. And this is where she says it was all just a setup. And then yeah. Allison began taking Mariah around her friends. Mm -hmm. This is where it gets interesting. So on page 69, Mariah started talking about um, Allison's new boyfriend at the time. His name was John. So she writes, The closer I got to my sister, the more clearly I could see her broken parts. She had secretly gotten me my own phone line, which only she called me on. She would have these desperate bouts of drug-induced hysteria and call me late at night in the middle of an episode. I'd talk her down off the ledge, then try and go back to sleep to get up early in the morning and complete the seventh grade. Then Mariah writes, The calls stopped for a while. Finally, one day, Allison phoned and said she and John were coming to pick me up, like a normal outing. I was excited to think of the three of us together again, riding, laughing, smoking, singing, and playing. But John showed up alone. We began driving, but there was no radio blasting, no talking. It wasn't fun at all, and I felt that something wasn't right. Finally, I asked, where is my sister? When are we going to pick her up? John kept his eyes forward and assured me, oh, she'll be here later. I was sitting in the front seat and I could clearly see the handgun resting against his thigh. John, his gun, and I made two stops, a card game and a drive-in movie. There's a look, a feel, and a smell to rooms where grown men play in the dark. It was dank and cluttered. The air was dense with cheap booze, stale menthol cigarettes, smoke, and unspoken perversions. There were no pretty things. It was hard for me to see and hard to breathe. I don't exactly know how many men were there. I don't know how many guns, how much money, or how many vile thoughts they were having at that table. But I do know it was all men and me. She explains that she sat in the corner and heard them, like, talking about her. And then, inexplicably, John took her and they left. Now, I have a theory about this, but I will share it with you. Okay. So she says, I don't remember how I got from the card room floor back into the front seat of his car. What I do remember is feeling dirty um, from the men's filthy words. I knew my sister was not coming to clean me up this time. A panic bubbled in my throat. Our next stop was the drive-in, where almost immediately John put his arm around me. My body went stiff. My eyes were fixed on his gun. John pushed in closer and forced a hard kiss on me. She's 12 years old at this point, and he's an adult. I was nauseous and scared. I felt immobilized. From the corner of my eye, I noticed an elderly white man pull up in the park next to us, peering directly into John's car. And she says that this saved her because they left the drive-in, and he drove her home, dropped her off, and that was Thank it. Thank God. Oh, my goodness. That I can't even it. imagine how far he might have taken it and had she that says not happened. about the man that saw them, I committed that man's face to memory. He is still there, fresh and frozen in that terrible time. I believe he was a prayer in person. Oh, God. Mariah talks about later in the book realizing that John and Allison's house, they shared it with a few other women. Mm -hmm. And she used to call it the fun house because they always used to have snacks, let her watch TV. She said in the book, I realized later on the fun house was really the whore house. John was the pimp and they were all working for him. Oh, so. I think that she... Was trying to get Mariah I think that, to be a part of it. I think that Allison pimped her sister out to John, who was taking her to see all of the men, so they could get a look at her. To see if they wanted to because chip in on that? I oh, don't know. God. So she believes her sister wanted to pimp her out. She writes at the end of the chapter, Allison had burned me in many ways and more times than I can count. Over and over, I have tried to be her fire department, financing treatment centers and paying for stays in premium rehabs. And Mariah did this for years. Mm -hmm. But even with substantial resources, there is no way to rescue someone who doesn't realize they're burning. The scars I carry from my sister are not just a reminder, they are lessons. They have taught me that perhaps our worlds are far too different to ever overlap, hers made of fire and mine made of the like. I always hoped and wished Allison would get better, so we could get better. 
I understand she was severely emotionally injured and had to take her enduring pain out on someone. And what she means by that is um, Allison expressed that she feels like her mom threw her away mm -hmm. because she was the only one sent to live with her dad. And Mariah writes, when I was 12 years old, my sister drugged me with Valium, offered me a pinky nail full of cocaine, inflicted me with third degree burns and tried to sell me out to a pimp. Something in me was arrested by all that trauma. That is why I often say I'm eternally 12. I am still struggling through that time. And that's a joke Mariah references because she doesn't recognize her age or birthday. She calls them anniversaries because she's a diva. She doesn't like to admit it. growing older. And so she always, her playfulness with her kids and, and during interviews, she always refers to herself as eternally 12. Mariah's 100% correct on that because there's actually a, a thing in psychology and I, I can't remember the ter exact term of it exactly, um, but when you experience trauma of some kind, whatever age you are in that moment when you experience it, it like if something happens later that reminds you of that, you'll go back to that same child mindset and you'll react to it the same way you would at that age. So, and for her, like, that's very much damaging her relationships, her ability to connect and form bonds with other people. So it makes sense that as she goes through life, most of life as humans, we're very social animals. We're trying to connect and bond with other people. But when that bond has been so broken, you know, your ability to connect and trust other people has been damaged in such a severe way, she will, you know, forever, you know, unless she gets you know, a lot of therapy and she, it can get better, but she'll forever sort of always revert see back. and yeah, revert back to being 12 and interpret things through the eyes of a 12 year old instead of, you know, however, whatever anniversary, she, yeah, whatever, instead of seeing things through the eyes of a 50 year old woman, she's going to see it as if she's 12, 12 just because of that's how trauma works. And Mariah says that this trauma continued well into her high school years, being biracial, being poor. She never fit in. She says that her and her mother moved 13 times. Which is a lot. I don't know why, but they just kept moving. They kept moving to escape things. And she always felt uprooted. She never felt safe. And that's she why didn't she... have the ability to no. form true bonds no. with anybody. She couldn't form a real connection with her mother. She couldn't form a real connection with her father. She couldn't form a real connection sister. with her sister, with her brother. She had no friends to rely on. She had. She was alone. She felt alone. She had. It's. I would venture to guess that she has a lot of abandonment issues because of what happened. Of that. Now in high school, Mariah talks about a situation that scarred her in a chapter called "A Girl's Best Friend." She says that for some reason, wherever she was living at this time, the super popular girls um, befriended her. And she says, but eventually I was invited to go with some of them, including the prettiest one, to Southampton for a sleepover. And this was a big deal. Oh, for sure. Um, she says when they got there, they said to her, come on, Mariah, let's go back here into a back room. She followed them into the back room. And they all stood around her and be began calling her the N-word over and over you're an n-word you're an n-word you're an n-word would... oh my i don't that's just so despicable um, to me she says it was my secret my shame i was frozen um the others quickly joined in you're an n-word they shrieked all together in unison they chanted over and over i thought it would never end now she says one of the girl's sisters who actually in the book she calls the ugly one the oh. ugly girl Oh. And there's a reason for that. At the time, her appearance is compared to the other girls who were like high school, like Regina oh, George, yeah. the plastics. Yeah. Her sister was ugly and didn't really match up with them. Mm -hmm. She came to her defense and was like, why are you guys doing this? Like, stop yelling at her. Yeah. And kind of came to her defense. It didn't stop. But Mariah actually says that years later, um, here it is. So she says, years later, after the release of Vision of Love, which was her number one debut single, I was all over the radio and on TV. My mother was still living on Long Island, and I asked her if we could drive by the house where the prettiest girl and her sisters lived. I stopped the car, got out, and just looked at the modest structure, a symbol of what I had survived. My mother, wrapped in a fur coat I'd given her, got out too. The prettiest one was stunned. She couldn't believe it had happened. Like, she had become famous. She had made it. Yeah. Um... She says, the mutt mulatto bitch who had lived in the shabby shack down the street had become a star. Oh, oh, so that's Mariah talking about herself. She's referring to herself as the yeah. mutt mulatto bitch. Okay. Yeah, they're not calling her that. That's her. Uh, the brother called out, you're a loser. The oh, brother yeah. called Mariah Carey a loser after she had made it. Okay. Okay. Uh, that family, that house, that town, that time, that day. 
Suddenly, it all looked like nothing to me. It was nothing and nowhere, and I had made it out. As I turned to get back in the car, I had heard the blonde girl, the ugly sister, crying after me. Mariah, I'm so happy for you. I'm so happy for you. And she became the prettiest sister of them all. I love that. You know, she's just such a good writer. I just she is. She, her her little... voice is very, very strong. It is. Moving on to part two, Sing Sing, which fans will know is what she called her house that she built with Tommy Mottola. Now, Tommy was the record exec that signed her. Um, there's a 20 year age difference between them. And a few years into her career, or I think even right at the beginning, he started showing like signs of wanting to be romantically involved. They got married a few years into her career, but they kind mm. of, he flirted with her and he was very controlling over her career throughout, but especially in the beginning and didn't want her to sound too urban, which she says back then meant too black. Correct. She wanted, or he wanted her to be a pop star, a white pop star, because she looked white. So we're going to have you make pop music and you have a great voice and you're going to succeed. Yeah. She does credit with him with truly believing in her. He believed in her talent, and she says, like, without him, she wouldn't have made it the way she did. The way she did. Yeah. She did think that maybe, you know, he was showing flirtation signs, romantic. He was interested. Mm -hmm. And she thought, okay, maybe if we get married, he'll lay off of me. Which maybe, I don't I don't quite understand that logic, but also I've I've had but I've had just as stupid of logic in the past, to be honest. I've been just that I can't say I've been that stupid. That's I have maybe just many you. times. Maybe just you. So, you know, I can't really judge her on that. She so, thought, you know, maybe if we just get married, maybe maybe it'll fix things. Well, it did not. It's an unfortunate pitfall. Everyone knows they were married for about about seven or eight years. Um throughout it, Mariah has detailed tons of um, emotional, not physical abuse, but emotional and mental abuse. Mm -hmm. Their house was rigged everywhere with cameras and microphones. No, he had a hell no. armed security team in the house. She wasn't allowed to leave without telling anybody. If she would wake up in the middle of the night, like when they were sleeping, and she'd go downstairs to get a snack, or maybe she wasn't tired, so she was going to go in the other room and watch TV. She says that she can still remember the noise of the intercom. If when Tommy would wake up in the middle of the night and realize she wasn't there, the intercom would go beep beep. And then his voice would be, What you doing? Like, watch That's for like so a creepy. hawk. That's so disturbing. Yeah, so disturbing. And she says this went on throughout their marriage. There was I one, would lose my mind. There was one instance where she says Tommy canceled Thanksgiving. So she and Tommy were out to dinner, and she says that night at the restaurant, what could have been a robust discussion between industry and artists about global culture and the future of American pop music became an epic Tommy tantrum instead. So what happened was um, Puff, um, uh, what's his name? Puff, I know him by Puff, um, Diddy. Oh, okay. I think. Um, so he was there with Mariah and Bad Boy, and they asked Mariah at a dinner with Tommy and other music industry people. She says that was their life. It was Tommy's life and she was like a supporting character. She was an um, accessory for him. Exactly. So she says at this moment, um, Diddy and Bad Boy asked her, you know, what do you, what do you like about the music industry? Um, you know, what, how do you think the music industry is changing? Where do you think it's going? And she says that Tommy didn't have a lot of respect for people in hip-hop at that time because mm -hmm. in the 90s people thought rap was a, a, yeah. you know a trend it was it wasn't, yeah it wasn't gonna last and so she actually said tommy shared his own opinion with me and my nephew sean about puffy and said quote puffy will be shining my shoes in two years and she said i was stunned um you know, I, this was one of the few times I stood up to Tommy and told him that he was being blatantly racist. Oh, for sure. Um, Tommy's white, isn't he? Yes, Tommy is okay. white. Um, is he Jewish? He's white. I, I think he's white. Um, and then, like I said, at the restaurant when they were having um, industry people and they were having talks, um, Mariah said actually that hip-hop and rap was the future of music. And that's where it was going. It, and it actually is now. And here we are. She called it. She called it. 
like Tommy would kind of sometimes cut in and answer things for her or talk for her. This was one of the moments where Tommy totally disagreed with her. Tommy did not like rap. He did not like hip hop. He didn't respect it. He would get strangely angry when people would talk about it in good terms because he thought it was like a stupid trend. Probably and I that's some racism there. Yes. Um, How dare I mean, people of other not, colors be successful in the music industry? Yeah, and, and we're not like huge fans of rap, but, but I have full respect for it. Hearing the word hip hop is successful doesn't trigger me. Um, she says that he got up huffing and puffing and started walking around the restaurant trying to calm himself down because she had answered a question and he, he didn't, didn't like, like the answer. Like bizarre little things like this, he just had to have control. And any moment where he was not in control, even of what she was thinking, it became a situation even in public. That's and very common in um, abusive, abusive relationships. Oh, yeah. Where if even if they perceive that you're thinking something that they don't like, they will problem. punish you for it. And, which and, is and so like Insane. toxic. So yeah. she says that he marched over to the table in rage and said, I just want everybody to know that Thanksgiving is canceled. And Thanksgiving would have been in like the next few weeks. He canceled their big dinner. And that's, yeah. she actually named the chapter, Thanksgiving is canceled. That's such a childish response. Um, and Mariah actually stood up to him that night and he said, you know, it's time to leave. And she sat back and crossed her legs and just stared at him and didn't say mm -hmm. anything. She wasn't going to leave mm -hmm. because she would have known that car ride back to the house would have been horrible. Mm -hmm. So she stayed and he left in a huff. That was one of their cracks in their marriage. Um, because she didn't listen to him and obey him. Yeah. Like a good, perfect Like housewife. a good little girl. Um, <clears throat> and was that you throwing up? Yeah. <laughs> I can feel that. Um, there were also other situations where she said she was working on music with longtime collaborators, producers, Jermaine Dupree and DeBrat. And they were at her house. And DeBrat was like, hey, let's go get some french fries. Let's go to Burger King. And I want, can we get food after this? Yes. Mariah says they snuck into her garage, past armed security, like snuck away, secretly got in her car and sped off the property. Go off, Queen. And she The says, fact that she has to, as a grown married woman, garage. has to sneak out of her house like she's a teenager. Like she's a prisoner. And she actually, one of the chapters, she named it Princess Prisoner. Because oh, I'm, everyone I'm in the world at this time thought she was a princess. Rags to riches, she's gorgeous, mm. she's talented, she's rich, she has tons of number ones, she's a princess. She's dating Tommy, who's like a big the name. The exec who back then, he was the most important, powerful man in music. He's not, yeah. they don't have those type of figures now. They have like industry leaders and label heads, but he was like a monopoly. The, he, was the, the he was the guy. guy. Yeah. Um, she says that within like five minutes of them leaving, security started calling them over and over and over. Where are you? What are you doing? Where are you? Tommy's bugging out. He doesn't know where you are. Where'd you guys go? And they were literally in the Burger King parking lot, less than a mile away, eating fries. Um, there's also- He's got his own set of issues because that's not normal either. It's now, not a normal response to have. Uh, at the end of their marriage- We knew that already. <laughs> we, we know that now. At the end of their marriage, she talks about- as the chapter says, the last show at Sing Sing. Now, in this chapter, this shocked me. So she says at this last show at Sing Sing, one of the last nights she was there, totally at the end of the marriage, she knew it wasn't going to work. It had to, it had to end. She had to get out of there. Uh, she said that she was working with two men I uh, had significant creative and professional relationships with whose duty it was to have mob-like loyalty to Tommy. And she said that she couldn't trust a lot of people in their circle because a lot of them were on Tommy's payroll and they were all He's like a little like Tommy's mafia leader. boys. Yeah. Yeah. He's like a little mob leader. Really? So she writes at this point in their marriage, which I believe was like 1996, 1997, and they did try and go to therapy. And um, their therapist said, you know, you need to give her space. You need to let her take acting classes. He said, you're never going to act because singers who go into TV shows or movies fail. Um, and, and so she, they went to therapy and tried to work it out. It didn't work. Um, and at this point, she says in their marriage, I think it embarrassed Tommy that he had lost control of his woman in front of his boys. Embarrassing, embarrassment enraged him, she said. Mm. Uh, I wonder what his past was. Because like that sounds she like said, I think he's got his own level of trauma. She mentioned that he had a, a hard life, I think. I mean, that um, would make sense. You're, when you're in that mindset that Tommy's in, you know, okay, so I'm Tommy right now. Oh, I see she's pulling away. 
I need to pull her in closer and that will keep her from leaving. Yeah. But in actuality, by pulling her in closer, it pushes her further away. It does. So it's that um, counteractive. I like how I, when I, I sit up like, when I'm trying to explain, I'm like, oh. <laughs> um, and it's funny you mentioned pulling away because she wrote a song in 1995 called Slipping Away that came out on their Rarities album and it was about their relationship slipping away. And how she says interesting that would it be to Tommy, be writing an album about like writing an album about a relationship oh, when your when your husband, husband is, is releasing it? Yeah, yeah. Um, she says that Tommy would not let her release it because he clearly knew it was about their marriage and that she was slipping away. Yeah. Um, so she said embarrassment enraged him. He began an awkward and creepy little rant about the beautiful car he had just given me and our fabulous estate, which I designed and half financed. And how, in spite of it all, I wanted to leave him. I Love was sitting, and then the guilt tripping. Exactly. I was sitting still, looking down at the table. You ready? Get this. Okay. When Tommy walked over and picked up the butter knife from the plate set or from the place setting in front of me, he pressed the flat side of it against my right cheek. Every muscle in my face clenched. My entire body locked in place. My lungs stiffened. Tommy held the knife there. His boys watched and didn't say a word. After it seemed like forever, he slowly dragged the thin, cool strip of metal down my burning face. I was searing with rage from the excruciating hum humiliation of his terrifying, cowardly performance in my kitchen in front of my colleagues. That's so disgusting to do, to use <sighs> physical violence like, like that like as an intimidation method. Here's a knife, like I'm going to put a knife in your face. How disgusting. It's just, ugh. and so. I feel so bad for her. They got divorced. She had a small affair with a man named Derek Jeter. I'm not surprised. Who's a baseball player, famous baseball player. They had an affair. Yeah. So she went to the Dominican Republic where they um, expedite foreign divorces you can get like mm. a fast divorce there if you ever need to know good to know um, i like how i'm pointing at you like you know, like if, I'm gonna, I'm, I, if anyone's gonna need it here it'll, it'll be, be me. um this was not the end though of her struggles and i would say that the next part is arguably the most traumatic of her life it's 2001 okay. and she's working on glitter now, Glitter is the only, well, not the only film she's ever done, but her only starring role in a film. She began work on it in the 90s. It was originally titled All That Glitters. It's set in the 80s. I actually really like the movie. After I finished the book, I went and watched it again. Yeah. Um, the soundtrack, I think, is really good. I'm a fan, though, so maybe I'm a little biased. Um, the movie was originally titled All That Glitters, and it was supposed to be grittier and darker. It's set in the 80s about fame and loss and over time because it was being made under columbia pictures who's under sony tommy mm. still had this grip of control it was watered down watered down watered down until it was eventually just called the glitter and it was very vanilla and even here mariah writes about the movie um you know, nothing that would have pushed the envelope was allowed. Anything that would have made it R-rated or even PG-13 rated was swiftly vetoed. Hmm. Um, it was just not allowed. Nothing could be too real, too edgy, too sexy, or too down-to-earth. There was a much grittier script to be had. Come on, it took place in the 80s, but we ended up with something very bubblegum. I like Sad. it still, but it could have been better. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the drama during the Glitter era started off with Lover Boy, which was the lead single of the soundtrack, which, as fans know, was a very different song before it was released. Uh, it originally featured a sample called Firecracker by the Yellow Magic Orchestra, and Mariah said that she had finished the song over the summer, locked down the sample of Firecracker, and then came J-Lo. Now, at this time, Tommy had signed J-Lo, and there was a rumor that they were dating very abruptly. And you'll see pictures of her from the early 2000s, and he kind of was trying to mold her into a new Mariah. Her hair, her clothes. She never had the voice, though. She never had the talent. She never had the huge, Shade. huge success. I mean, she's very famous, and she has a lot of hit songs. Um, but She's not she's the not same Mariah. as Mariah. She's no Mariah. Um, unfortunately, uh, when she was working on Glitter, um, it kind of was sabotaged. And she even calls it in the book, The Sabotage. 
because what ended up happening was um, the sample firecracker, Tommy had taken it and given it to J-Lo to use in her own song and quickly, quickly released it before Mariah could release Loverboy. Now that song was called I'm Real and it features the sample. It's a good song. I actually like the song. Yeah. But Tommy, she just explains in this chapter that, you know, he couldn't let her have success without him. And if he wasn't going to be in control of her, she was not going to succeed. So he was going to do everything in his power to, to make sure that this was not going to work. One of them was being sabotaging the movie rating and the content, the other being the soundtrack. And interestingly, in true Mariah Shady fashion, um, she brought back the whole I don't know her phrase, which I loved. Um, she said that another female entertainer at the label, whom I don't know, um, they had given her the sample, which she never referenced Jayla by name. She did reference the song, though, I'm Real. She mm -hmm. says at the end of the chapter, so gradually I overcame the dark time that my family had dragged me through, which we'll talk about. And after all of that shit, Loverboy ended up being the best-selling single of 2001 in the United States. I'm real. T. So as a lot of fans know, Glitter was a very, very, very tumultuous time in her life. She had her very publicized breakdown. There were rumors that she tried to commit suicide, that she was institutionalized. And we've never really known the full story until this book. And it has to do with her family and especially her mother. She says the people at the label, which at this time she had signed a $100 million contract at Virgin Records because she left Sony to get out of Tommy. She, she fulfilled her contractual obligations. She even went to Japan to the studio executive, like the top of the top, to help her get out of her contract. And he did. Wow. And okay. said, okay, you have to release this many more albums. She released Rainbow. She did the number ones collection, greatest hits, remixes, and she was out. Um, and so then Glitter was now under this new uh, label. So there was huge stakes, $100 million contract. Um, she says that all hell was breaking loose in the summer of 2001 because Loverboy only peaked at number two on the charts oh and wasn't at number one. Oh and she had had to, of course, re-record it and use different instrumentals and samples because... Her original idea was hijacked, mm -hmm. which created her more work. She said that during this time, she got a few hours of sleep a week. Oh, goodness. Like, wasn't sleeping, work, 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 filming music videos, doing the music, and, like, she wasn't eating enough, and it just compiled on her. It was terrible. Understandably. So, uh, it, there's one chapter where Mariah reverts back to about her brother. Mariah and Morgan and Patricia, their mother, were sitting in the family room, and... It was written, it was it kind of like an out of place chapter, like a memory that she reverted back to during the writing of this part. Mm -hmm. um, so she said that um, her brother wanted to like get her opinion on settling a problem, a quote problem. Okay. He had proposed that they could maybe kill her mom's boyfriend. Oh. Like take him out, like solve the problem. It was a problem. I could solve this. You know, I got a plan to shut him up. You don't need to know the details, but believe me, I can make him shut the F up. Um, okay. He went on to say that all he needed was $5,000. And I think a lot of the reason why she put this kind of out of place chapter here is because it goes back to her family always trying to extort money out of her. They always, they feed it off of her. And so she wrote this chapter in a very pivotal time in her life and put it in this part because during her breakdown when the label wanted her to film another video for the soundtrack um she says that she literally went to a hotel and like tried to sleep and get out of and, like no one knew where she was because she needed to sleep mm -hmm. her mother her brother and industry people found out where she was staying showed up at her door and demanded that she get back to work and this oh is a full-grown woman by the way in 2001 this is like over 10 years after she started her career. She is Mariah Carey. Yeah, like and she's going to be She's no fine. princess. Um, God. She's, no, you know, and she, was and she was living like an animal. And she says that her brother very manipulatively became like a rock, like was there for her and she trusted him and it didn't go well. She couldn't work anymore. And she ended up staying at her mother's house. And this is the house, by the way, 
that her mother, she bought for her mother, designed it and gave it to her mother. She went to her mother's house to relax, to decompress, to actually get a full night of sleep. Yeah. Like a few hours of sleep, maybe a week was what she was getting. Severely exhausted. And she went to her mother's house to retreat from everybody. Now she says when she first got there, she couldn't focus. She didn't know what to do to relax. She knew she had to go to bed, but she looked over. She was disoriented, exhausted, and went over to the sink and decided she was just going to clean some dishes. She was just going to do some housework. She was going to do something normal. Something familiar. So she's doing dishes and like one of them like falls out of her hand. Like she's just swaying. Like it's all just a mess. So she goes upstairs and even as she's going upstairs to get in bed in the middle of the day, she's cleaning up dog hair on the carpet. Like she just can't stop. Um, this was really disturbing to me because she says that she went into the guest room of the house that she bought her mother and finally got to sleep. But her mother woke her up Why? and said, Mariah, what are you doing? They're looking for you. And she said, you know, I'm trying to get some sleep. I haven't slept in nearly a week. I'm just trying like while reading this, I felt exhausted because nobody exhausted for her. will leave her alone. Like she cannot even sleep. Yeah, this poor woman. Um, finally, peace. And then her mother woke her up. Um, and she says they treated her like a machine. Repeatedly placed my earning potential over my well-being, which is what they did. She called herself an ATM with a wig. Um, and that's and, a good analogy. And Mariah says, that was the last straw. I really did leave my body. Something deep inside of me rose quickly up and out of my throat. It was feral with seething rage. Well, I did the best I could. I did the best I could. That's all you could ever say. Because Mariah's mom, when Mariah would always get angry with her about her childhood, would always say, I did the best I could. And so Mariah was like, I'm done. I'm going to give it to you. Mm -hmm. um, so Mariah literally screamed, I just want to go to sleep. Like yelling at her mom, like fighting with her. And basically she writes that her mother called the police on her, called the authorities on her. She writes, no one, and especially not my mother, had ever seen me in such a rage. Throughout my childhood, it was always Morgan and Allison who would throw hysterical fits. They would scream and yell and throw um, condiment bottles at each other. They would fight. They would shriek and threaten my mother or knock her cold. Mariah says as a tactic, her mother would always call the police on everything. They arrived at her house and said, you know, we need to, like, calm the situation. Mm -hmm. We need to separate this. And Mariah says that she thinks the reason her mom called the police was because in her mom's mind, she was thinking, oh, really? You dare mock me? You dare threaten me? You have no idea who you're messing with. So, like I said, the police showed up and her mother, you know, they said, you know, is there a problem here? And her mom said, yes, we are having a problem. And Mariah was sitting on the stairs, exhausted, sunglasses on, like sitting there, dead basically behind the eyes and they came into her house technically it was her house mm -hmm. and took her and put her in the back of their police car right yeah. Harry at this time the most famous singer ever is in a police car yeah it's, that's just at her mother's own doing over what exactly so Mariah writes I slipped on some heels neatened my ponytail slapped on some lip gloss and got in the back seat of the squad car she said, we drove off into darkness. Her brother was actually in the car with her. And her brother used this against her. In a day, she says, I whispered, this is all Tommy Matola's fault. And Morgan's eyes narrowed. And he flashed that sinister smile again. That's right, he nodded. That's right. At this point, he convinced her to check into a wellness center, a spa. Morgan did? Morgan convinced her to do it. Okay. And so I mean, she checked in. I mean, might have been good for her. Yeah, spa. Great. Yeah. This is more like a mental hospital. Okay. She realized she signed herself in, realized it was a mental hospital, and then tried to sign herself out and realized that once you sign yourself in, you, you have to do a bunch of paperwork to be able to sign yourself out. Yeah, because once you've committed mm -hmm. to that, you have to prove that you don't need it anymore. And, and she said, even through my exhaustion, all I needed was sleep. I didn't belong here. Like, I didn't need to be in a mental hospital. I didn't belong here. 
Um, she says that she finally got out and went to California and her brother was with her. She trusted her brother, interestingly, during this time. And they went to California and he convinced her to check into a real spa, like get to a real wellness center. Well, this ended up being just as bad as the first. It was again, more like an institution. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, she says that she walked out of her room in the hospital she was in in California, looked on the TV and it was 9-11 and the Twin Towers were burning down and she was sitting there, Mariah Carey, in a mental institution, standing there, looking at the TV, watching the Twin Towers go down. The most famous celebrity in the world is in a mental hospital. Oh, and on top of that, that was the day the Glitter soundtrack came out. 9-11. weird. 9-11 was the release day of the Glitter soundtrack. So it flopped, obviously, because who's yeah. going to go out and buy CDs on 9-11? No. And she's in a mental hospital and said, I was there and I didn't even realize the album came out. And yeah. the, um, like the head of the institution, the doctor, she was explaining what had happened to her. Like, I can't get sleep. My label needs me to work. My family won't leave me alone. You know what he said to her? Mm-hmm. He looked at her and went, looks like you need a dose of humility because her problems were too Hollywood. That's what the mental hospital doctor told Mariah Carey. That's just not good. I can't. At this point, and you know what? It's true. It was Tommy's fault. He sabotaged the song, creating more work for her. Her label is to blame for everything that happened, but it kind of, Tommy was still Had his fingers in it, yeah. Um, And after the whole glitter... You know, she says the box office sales for Glitter were dismal in large part because the country was still reeling from the 9-11 attacks. She says that at the end of the whole Glitter fiasco, Virgin Records called her in to renegotiate her contract. Mm. And the lady that signed her was fired and she was let out of her contract for like $10 million. They were like, just, we'll pay you $10 million to go away. Oh, wow. Yes. Jeez. So they wanted nothing to do with her. Oh, no. They were done. Like, you, like, done. And finally, the last part of the book is titled Emancipation. This is where she discusses her comeback with the Emancipation of Mimi, more number ones, E equals MC squared, which was her album after the Emancipation of Mimi, which stands for Emancipation equals Mariah Carey times two. Um, That was like a fast little throw out of facts. Yeah. During this time, she says she was in Capri a lot. She recorded, she was at peace, meeting new producers, finally allowed to really delve into R&B. She signed with, I believe, Island Records. She's bounced around a few times, Island Records, Epic Records, under good people though, L.A. Reid, Jermaine Dupree, Friends, and she's been able to make the music she's wanted since. Um, She also talks about um, her marriage to Nick Cannon and said that it was kind of a whirlwind Mm -hmm. marriage. And there's not a lot of juice or tea in this last um, part of the book, but she does talk about several of her failed relationships, including Nick, um, including the Latin Elvis, Luis Miguel. Back to her marriage with Nick. Um, This, she said, was like the first time she felt like she was in a loving relationship marriage. They had a miscarriage in about 2008, and then they gave birth to their twins in 2009, And she said that egos got in the way of their relationship and that if they could have worked it out without hundreds of thousands of dollars in divorce lawyers and money being spent and egos getting in the way, they could have worked it out, their relationship. Mm -hmm. They could have even had an amicable divorce without spending all the money, but their egos and drama got in the way. They're still on good terms. They have their twins together. Um... And she's been able to release music. She's been able to continue her life. She has her kids now. Um, In this last part of the book, this is where she discusses when her father passed and going through his things and finding the box of clippings and kind of getting peace with that. And this is where this, this last part, everything is kind of tied up. Like she gets closure to a lot of things and talking about her mother, even though she won't love all parts of her, she'll always take care of her. You know, she always let them have a relationship with her grandkids. Um, and I want to flip to the end of the book. Um, she discusses a lot of her um, live performances with divas and her favorite people and, and tours that she's been on and, and kind of behind the scenes facts of, of 
fan favorite moments. And it's really interesting. I won't go through them all because there are a lot. And I don't want to spoil. Well, I kind of spoiled. Spoiler alert, by the way, now that we're in this oh, video. Now that it's the end. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> now that it's the end. Um, but there are a lot of good moments that she talks about through the, the bad moments. So this book kind of runs up to the present where she explains that she's now dating one of her backup dancers. They began dating in 2016 after a failed engagement to an Australian billionaire oh. who we don't know him. She doesn't know him. He wasn't mentioned in the book. Okay. Because she said their relationship didn't matter. Oh. Um, she even charged him a $5 million inconvenience fee for their engagement not working. And he paid her $5 million. So he their relationship wasn't in the book, but uh, she does talk about her new that's boyfriend. That's so... Iconic. iconic. I can't even iconic. get over that. Why haven't um, I been doing that? I don't know. I'm going to Venmo all my exes right now and be like, I want an inconvenience fee. So the guy she's dating now, his name is Brian Tanaka. She originally met him in 2005 on one of her tours. And then she got involved with Nick and they got kind of separated, lost in translation. And they reconnected in 2016, like I said, with their when her engagement to... Um, What's his name? Billionaire Boy. Billionaire Boy. I can't even remember his name. I don't know his name anymore. He's not important. He's not, we don't know him. I do want to, like I said, discuss one of the last pages. Um, she talks about now having Christmas traditions for their kids and that they've provided her that unconditional love that she's never received ever from her mother. Um, and one thing I left out about her mom being jealous of her was one time they were driving somewhere and her mom was singing along to a Michael Jackson song on the radio. But because she's an operatic singer, she can sing it kind of opera-y. Mm -hmm. And Mariah kind of giggled. And was like, that's not the way you're supposed to sing it. And her mom looked at her and went, you could only dream to be half the singer I am. Oh. Like little moments like that is where Mariah says she has to deal with the beauty and the beast of yeah. her mother and, and it's like their it's relationship. It's just not necessary. Um, so now her Christmas traditions are going to Aspen with her kids and Brian, um, some of her backup singers, nephews her like chosen family type people so this is the last page and it kind of it sums things up puts where she says puts a little bow on it um like i said talking about the last chapter is about kind of her christmas traditions and and her chosen family and um on the last page she writes after the swirling toasting singing and celebrating folks peeled off to cozy up into their places for the night the kids were snuggled up in the family room watching a movie and everyone else was content in their bedrooms. I tiptoed quietly into the living room and sat by the fireplace. All was dark except for the stars twinkling outside of the big windows against the black blue sky and the warm amber glow from the fire. I reveled in a sweet, quiet, private moment with myself. I took it all in. I am peaceful. I am complete. That's a lovely ending to the book. And that is the meaning of Mariah Carey. That's a beautiful ending. Like I said, she has a chosen family now and she doesn't speak with her sister. She doesn't speak with her brother. Her brother has referred to her in the media as a witch. Um, I mean, her sister's okay. very poor. Um, Mariah is actually really close to Allison's first son, the son that she had oh. at 15. His name is Sean. Okay. Um, and she's very close to him still. She actually got to go to his wedding. Allison was not invited. Oh. Um, and they're very close. They spend Christmases together. And that's one of the people, one of the only people in her family that she is still close to. So if you were ever wondering who the real Mariah is. Read the book. Read the book. I kind of went through it all though. So if you haven't read the book, you don't really I don't need, need to. to. <laughs> um, of course, there are more stories and quotes that definitely, if Just you're a Mariah praise, fan, but... um, you should check out. But that... That was my little book review, book reaction. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you. Subscribe, like the video, turn on post notifications. More content is coming. Yes. If you are one of our podcast listeners, we love you as well. We love you for listening. We love you for watching. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.